Well, thanks, David. Um, and thanks for helping us get this event organized. I also want to thank Abby Jo Griffith, who also was a huge help in getting this event uh, organized. Um, so I'm going to sort of introduce Austin. I'm also going to let him introduce himself, but I'm going to introduce Austin by way of telling you all how I came across Austin's work. Um, so as David mentioned, I'm the minister to both youth and Camp Akita. Um, for those who might not know, um, First Community owns Camp Akita, which is a large um, summer camp down in Logan, Ohio. And um, we have been welcoming trans and non-binary and LGBTQ plus uh, campers for many, many years. And um, that includes some trans campers as well. And every time that we had a trans camper come to camp, though their family was reaching out to us to say, here's our camper, here are their needs. What do you, you know, which side of the hill should we put this kid on? Should they be on the girl side or the boy side? Is there kind of a third space? Um, and so we were working with those families kind of on a case by case basis and making sure that we were including those kids in the safest way um, possible in a way that they were going to be able to be um, fully included as members of the camp community. But what gave me pause was that we were waiting for those families to come to us instead of saying, here is what we can provide. Here is the, the welcome and inclusion that we have for all children, including trans, non-binary, and otherwise gender diverse youth. And so last spring, we put out a policy um, that basically just affirmed what our policy had been, which was all kids are welcome at Camp Akita. Um, they're welcome to be in, in the cabin that they feel the best in and that reflects um, their identity, whatever that identity might be. Um, and that policy was received with overwhelming support, which was awesome, um, yay. Uh, but there were a few um, very loud, um, angry voices. And so when those calls would come in, because I was the one who wrote the policy and I'm the camp director, those calls were coming to me. And so all of a sudden I was like the gender expert at First Community. And I was like, oh no, I don't know. Um, I realized that I didn't know as much about um, trans and non-binary and gender diverse identity um, as much as maybe I wanted to. And so I started Googling and found Austin Harkey's work, um, which includes a whole host of YouTube videos that are all very short and all very helpful, um, as well as Austin's book, Transforming, which I have here, subtitle, The Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. Um, and I found Austin's work to be just so helpful to me um, in helping answer these questions and helping um, not only answer the questions of those angry voices, but also of um, our supportive community and um, questions and, and just being able to support uh, the trans youth that were coming to camp as well. And so that's how I came across Austin's work. And then when Abby Jo reached out and said, which um, theologian would you like to interview for these clergy conversations? Without hesitation, I was like, Austin Harkey, I really wanna talk to him. So I'm super grateful that this is happening and that Austin was available to be here. So I wanted to share that as, as sort of like how I came to your work, Austin. Um, and so now I will kind of turn it over over to you. Um, and I, I ask that you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you got into biblical scholarship, um, 
yeah, tell us about yourself. Yeah, well, thanks, Sarah. I'm I'm so glad that uh, that you found found those resources and that they were helpful to you. Um, I uh, my background, well, to give you sort of a, a sum up of my 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 church background and how I came to the work that I'm doing now. Um, I grew up in evangelical non-denominational churches um, as a, a kid and then as a young uh, teenager, and then eventually started going to an ELCA church as a young adult um, uh, or an older teenager-ish. Um, and uh, so my experience is both in sort of the evangelical non-denom world and the sort of mainline Protestant world. Um, I came out as bisexual when I was a teenager, um, and that like threw everything into a, a, a bit of chaos for a little while, but that was my introduction to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and uh, it wasn't until later that I realized that I was trans. So I came out as trans when I was 25-ish, um, started coming out as trans, um, and it was the reason it took so long for me to figure that out so long, I say, I was 25 is young, but it's the reason it took me so long is because I didn't have the language growing up to be able to explain what it was that I was experiencing. And so, especially growing up in a very sort of um, enclosed, like homeschooling evangelical family, I was not given the language to explain myself to, to myself or to other people. Um, so coming out as trans happened around the same time for me as going to seminary. Um, I decided to go to seminary because I, um, I I sort of told everybody the reason I was going to seminary was because I wanted to be in youth ministry, which is true. Like I was doing volunteer youth ministry stuff at the time. But what I really wanted to do was go and learn about the Bible and scripture because of the way that it was used against LGBTQ plus people. I wanted to figure out like, why is it used that way? What was going on? Are there other ways to interpret this? And I thought seminary would be a good place to find out more about all that <laughs> and to kind of get all these answers to my big questions. Um, Seminary does not have all the answers to your big questions. So if anybody is laboring under that assumption, uh, set that down because it's not going to happen. But um, you will get a whole lot of interesting information and it will help uh, uh, understand, help you understand your faith in a different way. So I graduated from Luther Seminary in 2014 at the same time as I was coming out as trans. And a lot of my work uh, became trying to make sort of high-level academic theolo theological stuff um, accessible to everyone else um, because a lot of it is sort of couched in like this deep theological language that not everybody's familiar with and a lot of it is like behind paywalls on the internet or in books that aren't printed anymore and you can't get a copy of them so my work since graduating has really been trying to get this information um, and make it accessible to people um, understandable easy to get a hold of um, and so that ended up becoming the um, the YouTube series that you mentioned, Sarah, was really just me trying to be like, how can I get this where people can find it? Uh, and then the YouTube series turned into the book, Transforming, which you have there. Um, and then Transforming turned into Transmission Ministry Collective, which is the organization that I'm the executive director of now, which works to support trans and gender expansive Christians. So it was really kind of one thing building on each other. And so now I, I talk with churches around education, around um, trans folks and trans Christians and affirming theology, uh, and I lead TMC as well. Awesome. You are a very busy person. <laughs> There's a lot going on and a lot of really good work that you are doing. Um, in addition to all those things, so I, I, I visited TMC's website, which is just beautiful. And I have more questions about that. Um, mm -hmm. 
But one of the things that you say on there is that your greatest passion is helping other trans and gender expansive people see themselves in scripture. Mm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, I know that you have kind of your background um, is in biblical studies, mm -hmm. um, not just including people in church, for example, but but seeing, you know, stories in scripture that reflect the trans experience or the gender um, expansive experience. Can you tell us a little bit about why it's important that our theology around gender is biblically based? Um, why is it important that trans folks see themselves in scripture specifically? Mm, yeah, good question. I mean, I think two things kind of come to mind and I'll put a caveat out there before I even say those two things. And that is, for trans or gender expansive people, LGBTQ plus people in general who have been harmed by scripture, they oftentimes are dealing with a lot of spiritual trauma because of the way the Bible has been used against them. And mm -hmm. so if you're that type of person and you've had that experience, don't feel like you have to pick up the Bible again and jump into it. Like, don't feel like it's a requirement. And so when we talk about like helping people see themselves in scripture, it's not like you must do this in order to, you know, be a good Christian or whatever. But the two reasons that I think it's important, one is because um, lots of folks who are affirming, uh, lots of Christians who are affirming of trans folks, um, I think like, their heart is totally in the right place. And a lot of the time it's because, you know, they know people who are trans and they know what aff affirmation and inclusion does for folks. And so they, they are like, they are affirming of it. They are supportive, but they kind of feel like at a loss when it comes to saying why <laughs> it kind of just comes down to, well, God loves everybody. And that's like kind of where the conversation stops. Um, and it's important, I think, for a lot of people to feel like they have a strong base to stand on when they talk about why they're affirming of trans folks, because so many people that are like those loud, non-affirming voices, they have a lot of stuff that they're bringing in to say, this is why I'm not affirming. And so if our only response is, well, but God loves everybody. Yes, that's true. And that is a good answer, but we need to have more that we feel like we can stand on. Otherwise we're going to be easily shaken. Um, so I think that's part of why it's important to have this biblical grounding. Secondly, though, um, for trans and gender expansive people ourselves, it's important to feel connected to our spiritual tradition uh, in the way that everybody else is. Um, when we talk about sort of our spiritual ancestors, when we're talking about like going back to Abraham, going back to Paul, going back to, you know, whoever, um, this is our spiritual tradition that we were given. And I think in churches, we're often asked to kind of, to see ourselves in scripture. You know, you'll go to a sermon and it'll be about, um, you know, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And it's like, well, how do we see ourselves in that story, that interaction between Jesus and Mary and what happens and what they say? Um, trans folks aren't encouraged to see themselves and to see the Bible as relevant to their actual life and experience often in the same way. And so being able to look at the Bible and go, oh, this person, like, no, they're not trans in the way we understand trans identity today, but they are dealing with some of the same roadblocks to inclusion. They're dealing with some of the ideas about gender roles and who's allowed to do what. They're dealing with some of the uh, restrictions around like uh, how we understand our bodies and how important our bodies are or aren't to our theology. So that's where it can be really powerful to be able to see yourself as actually important and actually part of the story by seeing people who have those same experiences in the Bible. That's awesome. Um, one of my very favorite things that you put in your book is about, and I use it in a sermon, is kind of um, talking about the 
Genesis. Mm -hmm. Um, in the book of Genesis, you know, it says God created man and God created woman. And I, I feel like that is often, um, one of the first verses that folks use kind of, again, against trans folks is like, oh, it says right here that God created man and woman. What would your, what would your response be to that? Yeah. I mean, it's very, we have those two creation stories in Genesis one, Genesis two, in the first story, the first two people are created at the same time and God makes them male and female, right? In the second story, God creates one person and then splits them into two and they become male and female. And we take so much out of those two stories uh, regarding how we understand gender. So yeah, if somebody came to me and said like, well, God made people male and female and that's it, I would say, well, if we're talking about the Genesis 1 story, we have to recognize uh, all the other things that exist and God created and said were good that aren't in Genesis 1 and that break the binaries of Genesis 1. So Genesis 1 tells us that God created the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. What the heck do we do with penguins? <laughs> uh, God created day and night. So what about dawn and dusk? How do we decide which at belongs to or do, or do we say that like, oh, that truly is an in-between space, right? Um, God created land and sea, and yet we have coral reefs and marshes and estuaries and all these in-between places. Um, so noting, first of all, in Genesis 1, like, well, there's all kinds of stuff that isn't in Genesis 1. If it was, it would be a biology textbook and not Genesis 1, right? Um, when it comes to Genesis 2, I think that's even more interesting to talk about because you have this first human being who's made who isn't gendered until the second human being comes about. So in Genesis 2, we have a story of like, gender doesn't even matter to people or to God in the beginning. Um, it's not until God realizes that the first human being is lonely that we get the second person and then gender suddenly becomes a thing. So it's a lot more complex, I think, than people like to say when they're like, God created male or female. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah. And that's the example that I used in this um, sermon that I did. And I used the penguin example exactly as I was like, when all those people who say, um, you know, kind of the argument is God doesn't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't think that God makes mistakes. Like there are penguins and mm -hmm. there are non-binary people. Like mm -hmm. these are all, um, things that kind of fall in between these, um, you know, different things that are named in Genesis that I feel like are, um, really important. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stay on the like topic of, um, some things that I have heard folks say. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for example, um, I'm, I'm sure that you've gotten similar comments to what we've gotten here during putting out our trans policy, our, our gender, um, inclusion policy, um, which was one of the, the pieces of feedback that we got, got was, I thought you were a Christian camp and this policy doesn't seem very Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, so how would you respond to feedback that's similar to that? And what's your response in terms of showing people that Christian values absolutely include um, gender diverse folks. Yeah, I mean, I I always lead in in conversations that start like that. I always lead with questions uh, mm -hmm. rather than statements. So my first thing I would say to that, well, what does Christian mean to you? Um, if you say this is not a very Christian thing to do, well, what does Christian mean to you? Um, because I think. Uh, uh, I would suspect, and this would just be my making a guess, that this person means sort of like 
that doesn't seem very in line with the cultural values that we have come to associate with Christianity. <laughs> um, and so if that's the case, then we need to maybe interrogate those cultural values and what we mean when we say that doesn't seem very Christian. Um, I, you know, if I was going to have, uh, if, if this person asked me what I thought about it, I would say inclusion is very Christian because um, what we're talking about when we talk about the whole scope of scripture is a, um, an arc that is always bending towards the inclusion of the other. Um, and so whether we're talking about moving from like, we can talk about like going, let's go back to Abraham, right? God promised Abraham that all the people of the world would be blessed through him. But for a long time, it was like just the Israelite people that were God's people, right? Like for so long, that was the case. Um, and then even like specific groups of the Israelite people were more favored than others, right? And so you had lots of examples of um, insider versus outsider going on all the way from the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, all the way through the gospels. And there are several examples of Jesus himself being caught up in some of these like cultural issues. So for instance, there's the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, who's this woman that comes to Jesus and says, you know, I, I, I need this healing for my daughter. Um, uh, and Jesus says like, I was sent to the people of Israel, like why? And, and he calls her maybe something that wasn't very nice in that time and place. Um, and says like, why well, I'm not going to throw this to the dogs. This is for the children of Israel. Um, and she presses him and she says like, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. So like we deserve healing just as much as anybody else. And in that moment, it's almost like Jesus is caught up in the cultural values of who's in or who's out. And this woman reminds him that like, actually God promised Abraham that this would be a blessing for everybody. Right. Um, and so it's like, as you look at the Bible, this whole scriptural arc of inclusion seems so clear. I think when you take the Bible as a whole, that it, I would say it's absolutely Christian to say, that we are moving towards an inclusion of people who are excluded based on um, uh, identity politics in a way. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I think I would, I would ground it that way. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to just talk about people who have um, like given pushback against um, some of these theological readings. Um, I also want to talk about the people who have really found uh, them really life-giving, mm. um, maybe in very literal ways. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, and any experience you've had kind of since publishing either your book or your YouTube videos um, or TMC, any stories of folks who have kind of reached out and said, this has been really meaningful to me in my life and faith? Yeah, I think... Um... Gosh, there's like a, so many, so many possible stories there. Um, I, I, I think when we talk about what we do at TMC, at Transmission Ministry Collective, um, we talk about wanting to help people feel grounded in their identity and in their faith, connected to other people, and empowered to lead. Uh, and empowered to serve others. So grounded, connected, and empowered. Those are the three things we want to help gender expansive people feel. And um, the number of people that have come forward that have talked about the importance of all of those things is really stunning. But I think one of the one of the things that always catches me is when people talk about the importance of connection to other trans Christians, mm -hmm. because um, so often you can feel like you're the only one <laughs> in like many ways, right? For a long time, I thought that the way that I 
we tend to fall, I think humans generally tend to fall into either thinking everybody else is just like me or everybody else is completely different and I'm weird. We tend to fall in like one of those two camps. So for a long time, when I was a kid, I thought everybody just had super weird feelings about their gender. I thought everybody just thought like felt wrong in their body all the time. And I assumed that was true of everybody until I realized that it wasn't. And I was like, oh, no. And at that point, I started to feel like the only one who had ever experienced this in the whole history of the world. And I felt really lonely, right? It felt not only lonely, but shaming to feel like you're the only one and you're weird and you're the odd one out. Um, And when you meet other people who have had similar experiences, when you meet other people who um, uh, are like, oh yeah, I've been where you are, you know, that's really, really meaningful. And I've seen the way that that comes out for folks when it comes to their gender experience, but I've also seen it happen just as much when it comes to their faith experience. So many people are like, I did not know it was possible to be a transgender Christian. I was told my whole life that I had to choose one thing or the other. I couldn't have both. Um, And because that narrative is so common, um, you feel sort of doubly ostracized. It can be really hard because there are times when you feel like, especially if you're not in an an affirming church, um, you can't talk about your, your gender and your gender experience with those people of faith. But similarly, it can often feel like you can't talk about your faith with other trans folks um, not because anybody's like against it necessarily, but but just because so many folks have experienced that spiritual trauma that you don't want to risk bringing something in that's going to like bring a lot of bad stuff up for other people, right? You don't want to come in there waving a little Bible flag when people have been hurt by it, right? That's not going to work very well. Um, and so we're trying to be compassionate and like trying to be careful of the way that Christianity has harmed so many trans folks in the past. So having that sense of like, I'm the only one, I'm weird, uh, and I can't find anybody else to talk about this with. And then finding a community like that, uh, I think um, for a lot of people, it's kind of just like a sudden surprise birthday party (laughs) where they're just like, whoa, all these people were here waiting for me this whole time. Um, So yeah, it could be really life-saving for for a lot of folks to feel like they're, to know that they're not alone and that there are other people out there that will walk with them through what they're going through. Yeah. It is so amazing that you have created that because you're right that there are very few spaces that embrace both gender identity and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And you're right that most folks, um, or a lot of folks, I guess I would say, um, who are part of the LGBTQ community for good reason have, have left the church. Mm -hmm. Um, so what was there a person who encouraged you when you were 25 or mm. or maybe before was there was there an influence in your life that kind of helped you um navigate kind of being both part of the LGBTQ community and and being a Christian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first person I think of was the um, the um uh, associate pastor at a church that I started going to when I was about 14. Um And I uh, would come back from college to go like to meet with this um, pastor on the weekends. So I, you know, that was started when I was 14 and then went there all the way through high school and then would come back on the weekends when I was in college. And I was in this place at that time where I was kind of like, I don't know if I can be like, I don't know if Christianity is something that I can sort of buy into anymore because of the harm that it's perpetuated. Um, 
And so I would come back on the weekends to see this pastor and I would like have things like highlighted in my Bible. And I would like come in with like the ELCA statement on sexuality. And I would come in with like all these things come in with Martin Luther's small catechism. (laughs) And I would just say like, help me understand how it's possible that I can be part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are so many, I would, I would say like, okay, here's a specific verse. Explain to me how, like this verse and and me can coexist in the same community. <laughs> Explain to me how Martin Luther said this and we're a Lutheran community and I can still be part of this. Um, and he was so, um, he took the time for me, which was huge. He was like, yes, I will absolutely meet with you like once a week and talk about this stuff. Um, he uh, didn't offer me he very rarely was like, here's the answer. He very rarely said, here's the answer. He mostly talked about all the different possible interpretations of things. And I really appreciated that as somebody who grew up being told that there was one right way to believe things, that he kind of spread out this buffet, this theological buffet, and was like, here's how people have thought about this. What do you think? <laughs> and I really appreciated that. Um uh, so the those were kind of two things that he did that I really appreciated. Um, and it was, I think the the most influential thing that he said to me um, was I was I was considering being baptized because I'd never been baptized as a kid because we didn't do infant baptism in the tradition I grew up in. And so I was considering being baptized and I said, um, I feel like I have to sort of, uh, agree with all of the things that this community believes in order to be part of this community. Like I have to uh, like sign off on like, yes, I believe everything in the Nicene Creed <laughs> in order to like be a real Christian. Um, and he said, uh, I think faith is more like one of those big parachutes that you play with in kindergarten that um, or like preschool that you all stand around the edges and you all hold it together. And that's faith. Like we're holding that as a community and it's not so individualistic. There are times when you're going to maybe need to take one hand off of the parachute or maybe even both hands and let the people around you hold that for you. And then you'll come and take it and somebody else might need to take a hand off for a while. And that's okay because this is a communal faith. It is not an individual faith. And that to me um, felt like it kind of unlocked a lot of possibilities to know that this is not about me signing a paper that says, I believe all these things. It's about what we collectively hold. Um, and I think that collective understanding is something that gets lost often in, in American Christianity in general. So that was kind of a, a new thing for me that helped. That's awesome. Uh, we have one of those big parachutes at our summer camp that we nice. play with. And <laughs> I'm never going to see it the same again. That's mm. awesome. That's a really beautiful um metaphor and what an amazing mentor that you had. I know. That's awesome. I hope that you, I'm guessing that you have told him what a huge influence he was in your life. I, in, in a way I lost touch with him. Um, gosh, I don't know, quite a few years ago. And so I, I did tell him what a big influence he was, um, uh, in the several years right after that. Um, but I haven't, talk to him in many years now because I don't have his address anymore. So I should probably look into trying to find that through the church or something so I can write him a nice letter. Yeah. He sounds really awesome. And, and it also sounds like you are now providing that kind of theological buffet for other people as well. That's always the hope is that you can pass on the, the, one of the big things, one of my old Testament professors used to say is that, um, 
God's blessing in the Bible is always a blessing so that you can bless. You are always blessed to be blessed or you, you, you blessed, you are blessed to bless others. So like, I feel like that's always the way that it's supposed to work. Right. A pass it forward type of situation. Very cool. Awesome. Um, so the trans and LGBTQ plus community overall, um, has been under the microscope recently, um, and continues to be as we near next week's election. Um, there's a rise in anti-trans laws and hateful policies, increased violence directed toward the gender expansive community, um, and very unfortunately increased rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide within the community. So what are some of the biggest challenges in being a trans Christian today? That's mm. one question and a big mm-hmm. one. And then also, I'm also interested in how has your work changed in, in response to recent events? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how has it changed? The, the increasing visibility has been a real double-edged sword mm-hmm. um, because people who um, had never heard of a trans person before um, now are suddenly getting access to that language. And that's really, really helpful for folks like myself who grew up not having that language, right? So in that way, the visibility is really, really great. But the problem is um, the, the backlash to the rise in visibility is incredibly deadly. Mm-hmm. Um and so like I, I had this experience a couple of weeks ago, I was out sitting, at, I was working outside at a cafe. Um, and it's weird to think that growing up, I never heard the word transgender or even older words that we use for trans folks um, until I was in my mid teens. Um, but I was sitting at this cafe and there were two women next to me uh, just like discussing and talking about like the fact that they didn't believe that trans people were real and they were just tricking everyone and they needed to like, you know, it was all a fad and, you know, like it, it's weird that those conversations were not happening. And now my existence is like a topic of debate at a cafe. (laughs) Um, so it's, there's, uh, it's, it's this double-edged sword and, um, the rise, especially in legislative attacks and in political attacks, are having a really big effect on people's mental health and on their safety. Um, and so when when we talk about sort of the high levels of depression and anxiety in trans communities, I'm always um, I always feel very strongly about reminding people that it is not like there is something inherent about being a trans person that makes you more likely to have depression or anxiety. It's that we are experiencing this thing called minority stress, um, which happens to any person with a a minoritized or a a oppressed identity, um, where you are living in a world that is actively hostile to your being there. And that causes depression and anxiety. It causes suicidal thoughts. And so that's what we're fighting against. And, um, so, so that's really been on the rise in these last few years, um, and the the number of uh, anti-trans bills in state legislatures and now even being proposed nationally has just grown exponentially over the past five years or so. Um, so that's kind of what we're dealing with is like, okay, if you have to think about the fact that um, 
you want to go to Target, but is it going to be safe to like use the right bathroom there? Um, or you are in school and you want to play sports, but you don't know if you can play on the sports team of the gender that you are, <laughs> um, or if people are going to um, make sure that you are, that you have your genitals inspected by somebody before you can participate on the sports team. Like there's all these things that have caused so much stress for folks like me. And, and, um, and of course that's compounded when you have other minority identities. So trans people of color, specifically black and indigenous trans women are at the highest rates for uh for murder and for homicide and so like this is a very much a, a thing that is impacting people's everyday lives to think about how whether we're safe or not and how that will affect our lives um in terms of how that's affected our work at TMC um a lot of the work that we are doing now um is sort of thinking about <laughs> how we can foster resilience in folks who are dealing with all of this all these different kinds of inter interlayered um, oppressions. Um, so we're working on like, how do we create um, uh, sort of internal resilience? So not internalizing the things, the terrible things that people say about us. How do we um, create resilience in that context? How do we create interpersonal resilience? How are we having conversations with the folks that support us to let them know what's going on and like that we need help to like fight back? Um, creating um, a resilience when it comes to our mental health. So like, uh, yes, maybe the anxiety around like all these anti-trans bills makes you want to be online all the time to be like, what's happening? What do I have to be afraid of now? But like, how are we going to let ourselves take breaks from that and not be in panic mode all the time? Um, so a lot of the work that we're doing now is really fostering resilience um, because there are a lot of good organizations that are working to um, push back against all this bad legislation, but uh, as a non-legislative group, that's not our job. So our job is to help people kind of with the spiritual resilience um, that can pair with the actions that we are taking. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple follow-up questions. First of all, did you lean over to those women at the cafe and be like, I'm right here? <laughs> no, I didn't. My, my, the Minnesotan in me, the, the Midwesterner in me got the better of me. And I thought, you know, I could, lean over to these people and make some kind of statement, but I don't think my just being like, Hey, I'm trans would change their mind. And I didn't feel like I was emotionally in a place where I wanted to sit down and educate them. <laughs> that's really, that's part of the sort of resilience stuff that we're working on is like, when do you feel like you have the emotional reserves to have an education session with a stranger? And when do you just need to get out of there? Um, and so making that decision is sort of a constant thing. Yeah, for sure. And and I I love what you said about doing work around caring for yourself and resilience and knowing that when you go to the coffee shop to get a cup of coffee and read, you did not go there to educate and it's right. that's okay. Um mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Um yeah, I think that that's really important work to have that community and to have a community in order to do all of those really important things and all that work and also a community probably to be able to say, oh my gosh, you won't believe what happened at the college. <laughs> no, it's true. To be able to go to people who understand and are like, I can't believe that. I mean, I can believe it happened, but like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Yes. you yes. know, like, um, yeah, other people who get it. That's really important. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. Okay. And then the other thing that you mentioned was that this visibility is kind of a double-edged sword. So I want to talk about the other edge, like the positive edge mm -hmm. um, of, you know, 
there's more trans visibility, there's more trans allies, there's more trans and LGBTQ plus celebration and pride and acceptance. Um, so what are some of the biggest, I guess, joys of being a trans Christian? Mm. Gosh, I think uh, one of them is being, I don't know, a major one that maybe just comes out in like different facets is the having those connections to other people. So um, it's once you kind of realize that there are other people out there like you, um, you suddenly have siblings all over the world, <laughs> which is really cool. It's like you find a family that you never knew that you had. Um, and that kind of connection is really, really special. And of course, we all have very different experiences um, when it comes to gender. Like um, in TMC, we're mostly, mostly it's folks in the US, but we also have people from many other countries around the world. So like my experience of being a trans man is different from the experience of a trans man in Malaysia. And we can talk about that, right? We can talk about how that's different, but we can also talk about all the things that are the same um, and the things that um, that connect us. And so that sort of experience of, of found family is really, really cool. Um, the experience of connection with spiritual ancestors is also really, really cool. So like as much as I said that we can't go back in scripture and be like that person's trans in the same, like in the way that we understand things, it's not quite the same. But being able to like look back, like the number of gender non-conforming people in like the Middle Ages in Christian history, just like astounding, tons of them. They're all over the place, monks and nuns all over the place that are just like, well, you know, this person was assigned female at birth, but they lived as a monk for their entire life and nobody had a problem with it. And that's fine. <laughs> um, like the number of stories that we have, especially of people in the Middle Ages, is just astounding. And so having this sense of a history that you never knew that you had, it's it's really, really cool. So I think it's those connections that I appreciate the most um, to suddenly find out that you're not alone um, is a really, really amazing feeling. Yeah. I hear that about connections, not only peers, but also back mm -hmm. in history is so, so important to helping be, be able to see yourself in the text mm -hmm. um, is, and in church and in mm -hmm. the stained glass windows and, you know, mm -hmm. to see yourself in that place is so, so important. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's, let's talk about church a little bit. So in the dedication in transforming um, part of your dedication is um, to churches who are quote, holding the door open. So what is, what does it look like for a church to hold the door open um, specifically to gender expansive folks? It can look like a ton of different things. Um, there, there's no like one set plan for a church on like how to be affirming and how to put all this into motion because every church is a little bit different. Um, but um, churches that are committed to holding the door open, committed to saying like, hey, you belong in here. Come on in here. Like, <laughs> um, I think the um, some of the most common things that churches do that I have seen that have been really great are um, talking about like using more inclusive language in your church services. So it's very common for churches to um, accidentally fall into um, very gendered language. So, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ and like to be taught to use sort of, um, uh, especially if we're using like only, um, 
this comes in, I see a lot of times in music, um, especially where we're uh, talking about brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. How It's like in the hymns all the time. Um, and even in the way that we structure our choirs, like do we structure them by gender or do we structure them by like whether your voice is high or low? <laughs> do we, you know, um, so um, I see that a lot. And so churches that expand that to recognize that not everybody falls into one of those two boxes and that people might move like around on that sort of whole um, uh, I'm, I'm iffy on the word spectrum because I think the spectrum is almost even uh, almost even more of a closed system than it really is, (laughs) but that people move around. Right. So like, um, having language that acknowledges that. So at just saying, instead of saying brothers and sisters, say brothers and sisters and siblings or just siblings, right. To talk about, um, the, the church fathers, uh, and talking about like the church fathers and mothers and like uh, siblings in Christ, like to talk about the, all of the places where, um, we are not actually as broken up into gender as we think we are, um, can be really helpful because then when somebody comes in, they are not going to feel, um, like they're that weird odd duck. Right. And, and so I think the, the point behind it is not like we should be PC and nice because that's what we're expected to do. It's the difference between somebody walking in the door and feeling like, oh, I belong here and they expect me to be here. They have like they have seen me coming. And so they have made those changes and I will stay here versus somebody walking in and going, oh, they have no idea that I'm sitting right here. And that probably means I should leave before I find out if they want me here or not. (laughs) So like that's really I think what we're talking about is like preparing our community to um to welcome and affirm people so that when they do show up they don't have to hide um mm-hmm. and they don't have to pretend to be something that they're not um so inclusive language is a huge thing but there's a whole there's a host of things you can do so i promised that i was going to put some links in the chat so i'm just going to put a couple links in here really quick um there's a really great book um by uh, chris dowd and christina beardsley called trans affirming churches um and it's got some great uh thoughts on like how to be a trans affirming church and then there's a second book um, called Made Known Loved by Ross Murray. And it's all about LGBTQ inclusive youth ministry. Um, and like, especially with young people, how do we include LGBTQ plus young people? Um, and so those two books have some really good ideas about like what action steps can we actually take as a community? That's awesome. Thank you so much for like the resources to look into that. And I know at the the end of Transforming, you also, you like, bullet point things. Yes. Like, yes, actually. Talk about it and talk about it, but also here's the list. Thank also, you. here's a list. Yeah, that reminds me actually, here is a um, a link as well. We have a fifth uh, five-year anniversary updated edition of Transforming that's coming out in the spring, and it has an even more extensive bullet pointed list. So there's a link for that too. Okay, awesome. Um, one thing that we um, are striving to do here at First Community is doing... Th- Things like this, like opportunity to talk about not just Christianity, but um, LGBTQ plus like Christianity and Mm -hmm. um, uh, connecting not only LGBTQ plus folks, but also allies and and learning about um, just kind of different ways that we can learn about our Christian faith through different lenses, I guess. Some of the feedback that I hear from LGBTQ plus folks and allies is, is the 
feeling that, yeah, it's great to do some of these events um, and, and kind of special projects and have a float in the pride parade and stuff like that. But the feeling that we don't talk about gender and sexuality and identity in church enough. Mm. And then I also hear from folks um, that we talk about LGBTQ plus rights and theology too much. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question for you is how can we serve LGBTQ plus folks and, and those who are kind of very familiar with that community or familiar with the, the needs um, without alienating people who may not be as familiar, but who might be future allies and just don't know a whole lot about it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the sort of weirdly, the answer or one of the answers to that sort of question of like, we're talking about it too much, we're not talking about it enough, um, is to, if if possible, stop thinking about it as a special project and start thinking about it as something that is integrated into the natural like rhythm of your community. Mm-hmm. Um, because it can feel like, well, if you know, one in every three events we have is focused on LGBTQ plus folks, um, that can feel like, wow, we're really focusing on this. Um, and it, but at the same time, people who are LGBTQ plus and live like live life and have that experience might be like, yeah, but it's a hundred percent of my life. <laughs> so like, of course it's not enough. And I think the the thing to do is to stop having it be sort of like a a side thing or a or thing that we highlight and have it be something that is a part of all of our conversations. Uh, I think so. So, for instance, uh, as an example, um, when we're talking about any other issue, bring up the fact that our gender experience and our sexuality influences the way that we experience whatever it is that we're talking about. Oops, I got so excited. I knocked stuff off my desk. Um, that it always affects that. And so um, uh, some people then say like, well, do we always have to be bringing up sexuality and gender? Like, do we always have to be bringing that into the conversation? And the reality is the only time we're not bringing it into the conversation is if we have an assumption of one way of being that we've all kind of have, you know? So like, if we're not talking about the way our gender and our sexuality affects our lives, we're assuming that everybody is um like perfectly aligns with the understanding of what their gender should be and is heterosexual <laughs> like we're assuming that and then like anything else feels weird when in reality what we should do is recognize that every person has an experience of their gender and every person has experiences of their sexuality whether it perfectly matches the expectation or not you know, that's up for debate, but everybody has that experience. So when I talk to folks about trans identities, I don't talk about just about like, here's what it means to be trans. Um, Specifically, I talk about the fact that every single person here was born and was assigned male or female, unless you were assigned intersex, which is very, you know, not uncommon, but people don't talk about it often. Um, And so everybody here had sort of that assignment based on what their body looked like. Everybody grew up being taught what it means to be a boy or a girl. If I ask a room full of of cisgender or non-trans folks, 
Um, when was the first time somebody made fun of you for not being man enough or for not being feminine enough? Everybody in the room is probably going to have a story about that, not just the trans folks, right? So like when we talk about gender, when we talk about sexuality, this is stuff that affects all of us. And when we bring that into the light and say, hey, this is actually something that is like for everybody and it's not a special project, that can help people understand why it's important without it being like the overwhelming thing that we do. Yeah. That's so, that's so, so important. And it's another um, thing that came up last spring when we were answering these phone calls about our gender diversity and inclusion policy. Um, we did get calls from a lot of calls from parents, even if they were supportive of the policy, they were like, is this all you're going to be talking about now? Like, I don't <laughs> know if I want my kid to be talking about gender identity all the time. Uh -huh. And my response was, first of all, no, it's not all we're going to be talking about. We're not doing a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> as soon as the kids get to camp. Mm -hmm. um, but gender identity is something that we talk about with all of our kids because they talk about it. You know, right. they say things like, oh, I'm more of a girly girl. Oh, I'm not as much of a girly girl. <laughs> and then the conversation moves on. Like that right. was a conversation about gender identity. Right. Yeah. That's just naturally occurring among all people. So how can we embrace that and embrace that as part of our identities, not only as people, but also as Christians and know that those don't have to be separate. Totally. So. Yeah. And the way that like, um, you know, kids between like four and seven or eight or so are like figuring out life. And one of the ways they figure it out. And the one of the ways we teach is by helping them categorize stuff. So that's why we have them do sort of like which blocks go in which hole and like, what color is this? You know, we're having them do that, but they're also then learning how to categorize things gender wise without us even knowing that they're doing it. So that's why you end up with like five-year-olds that argue about whether red is a boy color or a girl color, you know? <laughs> and so it's like those conversations about gender are happening all the time as we grow up um, and taking a little extra time to like talk about that rather than just assuming that everybody is going to fall into some kind of regular understanding um, is important. For sure. All right. We only have a few minutes left. So I want to make sure that we, if I'm wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about, one thing that I didn't ask you about kind of specifically, but it's been sort of woven through the conversation is a, specifically about the transmission ministry collective. I wondered mm -hmm. if you just wanted to say just broadly overall, kind of what that platform is. Yeah. So we, uh, like I said, um, our whole thing is helping people feel grounded, connected, and empowered. And so we have a bunch of programming. Our main programming, uh, our main program is our support group program, which is for trans and gender expansive folks. Um, and we have all kinds of things. We have like a general support group, but then we also have specific groups for trans people of color, for trans people in ministry, for um, trans elders. So we have like specific groups as well, and they all meet online. So they're open to uh, any trans or gender expansive folks. Um, but we also have some things that are open to everybody, regardless of your gender identity or, or expression. Um, so we have monthly workshops. Um, and this month, actually, we're having a uh, an author come talk to us about the book that they just wrote. Kit Hayam is going to talk to us about a book called uh, "History Before World History Before We Were Trans" to talk about like how gender has been seen around the world before we had the current language that we have. Um, so we have workshops, and they're open to everybody. We also have a monthly Bible study that happens on YouTube every month. That's open to everybody. So all those things are at our website, transmissionministry.com, um, and I'll put. 
the resource here um, for our resource page. If you're like, hey, I want to know more about all this stuff, um, you can go there. And we've got one page for trans and gender expansive folks, one page for family members, and one page for ministry professionals. Um, so if you're looking for specific things. Um, and then since you said um, uh, other things that people might want to know about, um, I'm going to put uh, – one more link in the chat here, and this is from the ACLU. So I would really encourage folks um, to check this out. This is the ACLU's list of legislation affecting LGBTQ plus people around the country. And so you can look for your state and see what's happening in your state. Um, and it's really helpful if you contact your legislature, legislators um, about what's going on around the country, because there's all kinds of terrible bills that are in the works. And the more we can contact people, um, the better. And it's especially great when you can contact them and say, hey, I'm a Christian and my faith compels me to protect people who are oppressed. <laughs> um, that's a, a big, a big help. So anything you can do around that would be wonderful. That's amazing. Um, thank you so much. Okay. My very last question for you is, it, I mean, it's possible that um, someone who is attending this or watching it later um, has never, is a member of the gender expansive community and has never heard talk um, from a gender expansive person about Christianity. What would you say to a trans person um, who maybe is, is grappling with their faith or someone who's kind of hearing this conversation um, from an affirming place for the very first time? Hmm. I would say you don't have to have all the answers and you can go as slow as you want. <laughs> Nobody uh, is going to push you into believing anything or, or understanding anything before you're ready. Um, you can find a community of people that are like you. We're out here and we're excited to meet you. And um, that you don't have to choose, that you don't have to choose one part of yourself over another. Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome. And that's, those are wonderful words for anybody too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Accurate for everybody. <laughs> accurate for everybody, but maybe there are some folks who sort of um, would really love to hear those words coming yeah. from you. Yeah. So. Um, Austin, thank you so much for the opportunity um, to talk to you. I have gained so much from this conversation. I can't wait to watch it again. I was like, <laughs> so enthralled with your answers and my brain kept being like, take a note of that. Take a note of that. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. Um, thank you for the resources that you gave to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that this is not the last time that our paths cross. I hope not either. I hope we uh, get to work together in the future. And thanks so much for having me tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.